This was 2012. There was always the joke of like, oh, the interns running social. It wasn't really a joke. That was really what was taking place. You get into these rooms and get into these meetings with big Fortune 100, Fortune 100 brands, and you'd literally have the intern or like first job at a college, first year, and you'd have the CEO in the room at the same time. It was pretty wild, but we just made it up as we went. After a little bit, you start to realize there was two conversations. There was the why sprinkler conversation or the why social conversation. And at that point, the whole entire world is great for you, right? It was rewarding in every sense, be it personally, professionally, financially. The company was always great to me, provided me the opportunities to sell to the biggest companies in the world, travel the globe, and then certainly to go through a liquidity event like an IPO helped set me up financially. So I felt really fortunate. I remember having lots of colleagues who, you know, they got off the bus early and they were like, oh, I found this opportunity, it sounded really interesting. And then I'd see a bunch of folks there on job two or job three a couple of years later, you know, and they were trying to constantly recreate the special thing we had with the people and the technology and the timing. It's just so hard to recreate. I'm unfailingly loyal. So all of those things made for me sticking around for as long as I did. It's rare for anyone to spend 10 years at one SaaS company. It's even more rare for someone to go on the journey from first sales hire all the way to an IPO. Today, I'm joined by Jason Fishkind to talk about a decade of sales growth at Sprinkler. Welcome to Grow and Tell, the show where revenue leaders tell the growth stories behind today's successful companies. I'm your host, Alex Krakoff. Jason Fishkind joined Sprinkler as the first AE back in 2012. Social media management was still a new category, and the company had less than $5 million in revenue. He spent five years as an AE. He's a top 10 seller in company history before he was promoted to group director of sales. Jason was successful as a leader too. Over the next five years, Sprinkler grew to over $500 million in revenue, went through an IPO, and earned a valuation of over $4 billion. After Sprinkler, Jason joined People AI as a regional VP of sales, where he spent two years building out their East Coast team of AEs. Jason recently joined Cresta, a generative AI call center technology, as their AVP of sales. In today's conversation, Jason and I talk about what it was like selling social media in the early days, what made him a successful seller, and how he personally kept up with Sprinkler's growth curve. We also got into what it was like changing companies after 10 years, his favorite interview questions for AEs, and tips for selling AI to the enterprise. I hope you enjoy Jason's growth story. So you sent a cold email that changed your life and led you to join Sprinkler as the first sales hire. Why did you want to join Sprinkler? And do you remember what caught the founder's attention? Yeah. So uh, it's actually a funny story. So I was in the printing industry for a number of years and I met a girl and I realized she was quite expensive. She had expensive tastes. And uh, I said, you know what? I think I need to earn a bit more money than I had been. So I was in sales. My dad was in sales, actually. And he had a whole list of recruiters and he gave me gave me the list. And he said, hey, Jason, why don't you call some of these folks? Well, I was calling these recruiters and they all said, Hey, Jason, you don't make enough money for me to qualify for the jobs that you want. I was like, oh, okay. So I went back to one guy and I said, well, what do you, what do you suggest I get myself into so that my next call is to you and I qualify for it? And he says, uh, big data, something, something, or social. And I was like, oh, okay. And he goes, you know what? I like your question. Let me get you an interview with a company called Hearsay Social, which was run by Clara She. She's now part of Salesforce, which is a whole story in itself tries to get me the interview. I never ended up having the interview. I was doing a bunch of research, came across Sprinkler. I was like, huh, this sounds like a uh, interesting company. And I found the uh, uh, I found one or two 
small articles or videos where they were looked at. And I said, you know, let me cold email the CEO. And I, there was a simple short message. It was the subject line was uh, your next tax sales app, but your search is ended, dot, dot, dot. Put my little background in there. Three weeks later, I got an email back or two weeks later, I emailed back. And a few weeks after that, I changed my life. Started. That was it. And what was Sprinkler like when you joined? Was there like revenue? Was How big was the team? Was there like a working product? Like how how early was it? Yeah, was I like- mean, there was definitely a working product. They had been hacking at this thing for a while. Raji bootstrapped the company himself. So they had just taken Series A, 5 million uh, ARR. They were, I think it was $25 million valuation. But I mean, he had bootstrapped himself. So they were going for a bit. He did all the initial deals himself. So first handful of deals like Nike or or Microsoft or Intel or Cisco. Um, but yeah, it was like we had these, it was on 30th Street Manhattan. The office was disgusting. I uh, had these green and red Ikea desks. It looked like Christmas threw up all over that place. And it's funny because I worked for this Fortune 200 printing company and the CEO of that company was on my floor in prior life. And I used to wear a suit and tie every day. And I mean, my boss at the time would be like, did you shave today? You know? And and I started trying to dress down, but I was walking to this office and everyone in there was in, it was, it was small little tech company. They were in shorts and a t-shirt and uh, they didn't like that too much. But uh, yeah, it, it was interesting for sure. It's so funny, the difference of like corporate culture versus startup culture. I remember growing up, my dad, who's like corporate lawyer, the whole time would be like, you're going to have to shave your beard. You're going to have to dress nicely and go to work. And it's like, you know, it's funny being in startup where I can just be a gremlin and wear sweatshirts and as long of a beard I want, it's like a badge of honor, you know, (laughs) to do that. So it's so funny how different of of cultures act. Yeah. (laughs) It took me a while to to get used to just being okay. I was a ping pong table, whatever, all the, all the typical things, but you know, dressing down was, was, uh, was a new one for me. And I'd love to learn more about what early sales looked like at Sprinkler. Cause as you said, you're kind of moving, going from seed to series A. Raji, the founder was doing all the sales himself. And so what was that transition like from founder led sales to you starting to do sales? Were you partnering with him on every call? Were you kind of just running your own book of business? Can you take us back to those early days? It was great. I started a few handful of their folks started very shortly thereafter, and they had hired a VP of sales that effectively started right around when I did. So Raji was was phenomenal. Like working next to him was like getting a, an MBA by osmosis, just watching. I think I was 27. I, it was one of those where I wish I had more experience right at the time, just so I really understood what I was soaking in. You know, uh, hindsight's always 2020, but he was great. He just said, "Hey, go for it." I, they, they didn't weren't really worried about me calling on the existing accounts. It was just go after net new, you know, and go land logos and go figure it out. So it's effective what we did. We tried to figure out what worked, what didn't work, and we did our we did our best. And social was like this new thing at the time, right? Like, what year was that? Because like I assume like social media management wasn't really an existing category. Like, what was the no. state of kind of that that market? Totally. So there, this is twenty twelve. This is. Memorial Day of 2012, around then. And yeah, this is legitimately when there was always the joke of like, oh, the interns running social. It wasn't really a joke. That was really what was taking place. And what was actually fascinating about it was, especially as time went on a little bit, you get into these rooms and get into these meetings with big Fortune 100, Fortune 500 brands, and you'd literally have the intern or first year, like first job at a college, first year, and you'd have because social was so real-time in nature, you'd have the CEO in the room at the same time. It was pretty it was pretty wild, but we just made it up as we went. You know, we were trying to find, we certainly had some product market fit with the big companies, but we were trying to now bring this to market. There was no brand, no one knew who we were. So we spent a lot of time trying to just get our name out there. 
it seems like you started with definitely, as you said, like bigger companies. I'd love to know, like, what was that early pitch? And was there a lot of education? Like, did you have to teach people about social and then teach them about social media management? Like, how did you sort of convince people that this was a problem that they needed to solve? Yeah. So I looked at it. It's a good question. I looked at it as binary. Well, at first, you're just trying to figure it out, right? Just try out the pitch, try different things. But after a little bit, you start to realize there was two conversations. There was the why sprinkler conversation or the why social conversation. And at that point, the whole entire world is greenfield, right? Every account is doesn't have this. So if I have to go evangelize why social, like why anything, period, probably not a great use of my time. So I really spent my time trying to figure out where are folks doing this, where there's some sophistication and strategy, or there's more than a handful of people that are even thinking about social media within an organization. And that's where I went and spent my time in the why sprinkler phase, you know? And what did that early product actually do? So in today's world, it's actually not that fundamentally different from, from what Sprinkler's core product is, which was just social media management. It was the, if you put social into three buckets, organic or owned social, earned uh, and paid, it was all things owned social media before Facebook built the walled garden, right? It was, but none of that existed, right? So it was, it was people, we would go explain it. Actually, it was one of those where We'd go to these trade shows and I used to explain to people because a lot of what Sprinkler did was was it was helping people post things on social media, giving them automation to do that. And there was permissions and calendars and monitoring and reporting. But I would explain to people it's like the pipes and plumbing for how you operate social media for a big brand. Some understood it. Some certainly did it. But we were really competing against the time Radiant 6, which did some listening which was bought by Salesforce not long after I joined. Um, it was competing against Buddy Media. If I remember Saplitz was a thing or these uh, these things on Facebook and then Hootsuite. So I would go to these trade shows and people would go, oh, so you're like Hootsuite. And I'm like, mm, sort of. Or you're like Buddy Media, mm, sort of. I'd say, oh, no, we're, we are Radiant 6 plus Buddy Media plus Hootsuite all in one with like reporting and governance. They'd go, oh, okay, interesting. <laughs> Why do you think it resonated more with like enterprise buyers versus SMB? Like, why did you deliberately go after kind of that more upmarket segment? Was it just like the contract sizes are more appealing and that was kind of the answer? Or was do they feel so, the pain more? Yeah. I think in Raji's world, he saw this as he he was in the email space before. And I think he saw this as an enterprise problem and that most companies would start with the SMB or start small. And he's like, this social is really complex. Social media is not just one channel like email, it's many channels. It's Facebook and Twitter, and then it's Instagram, and well, now it's Instagram and TikTok and Reddit, and there's dozens, right? And you think he realized the complexity of this, and the real need was going to be for at scale when these big companies start to really get into this, they're going to need something that's purpose-built for the large enterprise. And a thousand percent, his vision was spot on and accurate. That dude was very much correct. And you're telling me about how John McMahon was on the board of, of Sprinkler in the early days, and he's an absolute sales legend. Can you kind of share the story? Yeah. So McMahon was in, was on the board or as an advisor to Sprinkler. I forget which one. And uh, I remember we were at this, uh, I had sold print before this. So I'm like two months into my software sales career. And we're at this offsite in uh, Westchester in this like place, this conference center time forgot. It's like this wood paneled place from the 80s. And there's the entire Sprinkler US-based team, sales team, basically. There was, I don't know, 25 of us, like after everyone, everyone that was in the US was there. And McMahon starts 
training everyone on MedPick. And I remember he's a tall guy, he's imposing, big energy. And I remember him just walking over, stalking, big U-shaped room. I remember him stalking over me and saying, oh, like, uh, what's Ian? I remember saying economic buyer and he asked a couple follow-ups or whatever it was. And I didn't have the answer. And then he came back to me again and was like, so what's the answer now? I remember I just blacked out. Still to this day, it, that moment gives me like Ajita and, you know, like, oh God, please never be back in that scenario again. I've definitely had plenty of conversations with him afterwards in the years following, you know? Yeah, I've, I've never met him myself, but I've listened to him on some YouTube uh, and podcasts and stuff. And there's like yeah. a certain level of intensity about that guy where I'm like, oh, wow, you must have been really hardcore to work for. And I see why yeah. he's like so successful as a sales leader. And yeah. he's, he's a bit more chill now. And actually, it's funny. So McMahon was on our board and then we were pretty early with force management with John Kaplan. So actually, the fortune of taking that message from him twice. It's like, I don't know, a fun little fact of like, those are two big names in our our world and our space, but learning what they do and what they've brought to bear to the market uh, from them directly is a cool little thing to say. And so you spent over five years closing new business at Sprinkler and you were yeah. a top 10 AE in company history. Like what made you so successful as an AE and why did customers buy from you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really two key things. One, it's all about champion building. I realized that early. We used to have a stat at Sprinkler or something along the lines of like more than half the people that led the purchase of Sprinkler were promoted within 12 months. So to me, it's the identif- always identifying a personal win for somebody, whether it's to make their job easier or it's, hey, they're seeking recognition or their career advancement or some combination of all the three, like building champions is everything. And I think the reason that folks bought from me is I'm always really proud of, I, I always sold the right deal. Was I always like the top dog on the on the scoreboard? Probably not, actually. I had a lot of folks, a lot, a lot of colleagues who tremendous sales professionals and just absolutely blew their numbers out of the water. Um, but I don't know if they always sold the right deal. You know, what I was really proud of is I think I did, I don't know, 50 or 60 logos in my five years. And nearly all of them were still clients when I left even five years after that, you know? So I was never about the short-term win, putting like money in my pocket. It was more about... How do I go sell the right deal? How do I go solve the right problem for the customer that they're trying to solve now, prove value, and then in 6, 12, 18 months, you know, they're they're growing with us and expanding versus trying to resell and save the thing that we oversold, you know? And, and who was the champion at Sprinkler? Was it like a social media manager? Was it a VP of marketing? Did it change depending on who you're talking to? Like who, yeah. as you're trying to set meetings with people and find champions at companies, yeah, who were you reaching out to? I mean, in the early days, the title of social, you know, was, did that even exist? You know, sometimes, sometimes not. So yeah, many times it was a, a VP of marketing was probably the most common title. And then it, certainly as time went on, it was a, a director of social because most of them didn't have VP titles. And then as organizations became really hip to it and really understanding the power of social, uh, it certainly morphed over time. The other would be, as time went on, it was someone in care. So you'd get into these meetings and oftentimes, you'd, remember early days especially, it would morph social, like the social marketing folks in care. There was the social, one of the first times those two groups were brought together, they need to do something instantaneous. And that's actually a lot of what, what drove Sprinkler in its early days. 
Gotcha. When you say care, it's like people writing on social for customer support requests and things like that. And then you got to figure out, okay, how do I actually follow up with this customer? Because there's a whole new channel you got to manage outside of just like your email support thing. That's exactly it. But marketing owned those channels, right? So marketing owned it. And they're like, oh, I got to solve this. How do I get this? I have to take a screenshot, drop an email, send it to customer support. And then it kind of goes back and they just go ping pong back and forth as opposed to saying, you know, let me just do this in the system. That's where we would explain a lot of the pipes and plumbing analogies. And that's where it really started to connect for people. And that was really the first key use case that we found huge utility in. I know I wasn't expecting that per se, but it was it was big. And how were you able to kind of get on the same side as your champion and not come across as like salesy or trying to sell them something? Like, you know, was it like, how were you able to understand their problems? Were you building roadmaps with them? Like, what, what were you doing with them that kind of made you such a trusted partner? I mean, been in a leadership role now for a handful of years. And I think it goes to the same thing that I look for in the folks that I recruit is the number one trait, I think, is curiosity. So if you're in the room with somebody and you're just you're just trying to throw features and functions at them, I don't I don't think that holds water. But I think if you have some natural curiosity and you ask the right questions to genuinely and you probably show a genuine care for the problem they're seeking to solve and more importantly, why and with what benefit or outcome. I think that drives a lot of that relationship and for why some of these folks will will go run through a wall to go get things done on behalf of the the sales professionals they work with. And you eventually became a, a sales leader at Sprinkler. I'd love to know, like, what was the hardest part of that transition from AE to manager? The SVP at the time that was a couple of levels above me promoted me. He said, Jason, he goes, you're going to be the sales, ma- sales leader, but mm, you're not really going to be the leader. You'll just be the manager, you know? He's like, you'll, you'll see, you'll, it'll take you a bit to, it'll take you a little while to learn how to lead properly. Um, for now, you'll just manage the number more than anything, you know? So I was fortunate that I was already the de facto like, go-to for my peers, you know? So I see a lot of folks who get promoted for the first time and now they're responsible for their peers. And that's a challenge, you know? But I was, I was fortunate that that wasn't a challenge for me. But I'll tell you one funny story, being a first-time leader, and I was that energy, definitely no one will ever accuse me of not having energy. I remember uh, on Sunday nights, I've never gotten the Sunday scaries, um, but Sunday nights, I'd send this recap email. Hey, here's what we, the recap from the prior week. Here's a look at the week ahead. One Sunday night, I'm sending an email, and I hit send that. I call it 9.50 Eastern on this on this note. I walk in. This is pre-COVID. Walk back into the office. My whole team's there for the Monday morning meeting. And one guy, he looks at me. He goes, Jason, he goes, do you watch Game of Thrones? This is the height of it. I go, no. He goes, well, you sent an email in the last 10 minutes of the series finale of Game of Thrones. And he's like, this guy better have something important to say or I'm going to kill him. So uh, I was like, you know what? Learned my lesson, and uh, I definitely do not do that anymore. The uh, send it later button or Slack later button is my best friend. Yeah, that's funny. I'm not like the biggest sports fan. I like sports, but I'm not the biggest. And so there's sometimes I'm like doing work while big sports things on it. I'm like, yeah. I maybe shouldn't send this email during the World Series. People yeah. probably care more about that than whatever <laughs> stupid thing I'm emailing them. Yeah, that was funny. Um, so Sprinkler had insane growth over the 10 years. You were yeah. there going from like 5 million in revenue to 500 million plus. And the company went public in June 2021. What was IPO day like for you? Uh, that was a, a, a day, I mean, you work with, with leaders over time and they talk about, oh, we're going to IPL, right? And you just kept sensing it was going to happen and always wanted to do it. And it's like a dream, right? It's just out there. But uh, I remember we finally followed our S1. We were so excited. And then 
this was in the middle of COVID, right? So we were really fortunate and happened to be when we filed the S1 and when it was set to IPO, the New York Stock Exchange lifted their protocol or was they finally let people back on the floor. We were the first IPO post-COVID allowed back on the floor. Went up to New York City and and uh, threw a huge party. It was great. It was on the floor ringing the bell with uh, Jim Cramer right, right behind us. But um, that was a day I will certainly always remember. It's what you join early stage companies for. Um, I would imagine a liquidity event is probably fun in, in any respect, but the ability to be on the floor of the stock exchange and and hear the bell ring and cheer and chant and seeing that all those years later was just freaking awesome. Yeah, you spend you spend like so much time growing up at a startup, like looking at that iconic image of yeah. the stock exchange. You're just like one day, one day, yeah. and I I can't imagine. I think about that with with Lattice. You know, I'm no longer there, but I'm like, you know, Lattice knock on wood is going to IPO someday, and it's like I'm I'm just hoping I get invited to like a sub sub party uh, around the New York <laughs> Stock Exchange. That's my goal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was, it was uh, I felt very fortunate to be part of that. And like, what was this journey like for you on a personal level? I mean, it must have been crazy trying to, you went through probably so many iterations of the company, so many different people, and like the company changed so much. Like, how were you able to kind of keep up with this company growth curve and and sort of survive for, for 10 years there? Yeah, so I think it's a couple of things. Like one, it was rewarding in every sense, be it personally, professionally, financially. Like the company was always great to me. Um, I got married, had both my boys while working there. I went through sickness while I was working there. The company was always great to me, provided me the opportunities to sell to the biggest companies in the world, travel the globe, and then certainly to go through a liquidity event like an IPO helped set me up financially. So I felt really fortunate. I think the biggest thing over that, anyone thinking about having having a big run in a company or do I leave or like all the, those things that go through your mind, I think there's a few things. One, um, I used to say there's two constants. What is speed? The other is change. So that's a that's a definite constant in any high growth company. You've got to have the growth mindset um, and just be open to challenges and open to learn. You know, if you're not okay being humbled constantly, you know, get your get knocked down, pick your ass up, like just go figure it out. I think it's really really critical. I think the other part is like I stayed for a long time. Is I remember having lots of colleagues who. You know, they got off the bus early and they were like, oh, I got I found this opportunity. It sounded really interesting. And then it didn't work out after a year or two years. And then I'd see a bunch of folks there on job two or job three a couple of years later, you know, and they were trying to constantly re- recreate the special thing we have with the people, and the technology, and the timing. It's just so hard to recreate. And I'm unfailingly loyal. So all of those things made for me sticking around for as long as I did. Yeah. It's like, there's only so many of these special companies out there that are going to grow that fast and change that much. And it's like, when you sort of have that seat on the rocket ship, you better strap yourself in and, and stay there as long as you can. And I sort of yeah. felt like that at Lattice where it was like, this is my chance, you know? And I, I, I did last 10 years. I lasted five because I, I want to go start a company, but it was still like really hard decision yeah. to leave. Cause it was like, this feels special. And I know it was like, this isn't going to just happen again at any other company. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'm curious, like, do you have advice for other people who want to go join a high growth company or maybe they're already like, yeah, how can they kind of navigate all the change that happens at the company and not only navigate it, but like thrive in kind of that that natural chaos? Yeah. So what I said before, it's like the simplest thing is mindset, right? Just to use that term, like mindset is everything. Um, if you're not comfortable in that environment, it's not for you and, and that's okay. But you have to, in that environment, you can't wait around for people to do things for you, you know, 
I like the Extreme Ownership book from uh, Jacko. You've read that? Like in small companies, you have to have that that mindset of extreme ownership and drive to completion, especially in small companies. So the mindset of learning is a huge one. They also is, I always, always also had opportunities, right? If I, I felt that when I wasn't learning, me being bored is a dangerous thing. Constantly go seek to challenge yourself, right? Within your current role and just keep looking for the next challenge within the company. Um, if it's something that that you are you want to keep continue to do and that you can earn, you can go find great opportunity for yourself. And after Sprinkler, you went and joined People AI to yeah. lead their East Coast sales team. For for those that aren't familiar, can you kind of give a quick explanation of People AI? Yeah, sure. So People AI is a revenue intelligence technology that allowed go-to-market teams to win more revenue through improving pipeline execution. So it did things like activity capture. So you'd have a factual understanding of what was taking place in an account or an opportunity or by AE. And then the data can be used by leaders to coach reps in deals or do territory segmentation. And then some folks may be familiar with the name Close Plan, which was part of People AI. So things like account plans or relationship maps and opportunity scorecards, all of those things ultimately help sales teams some more. Gotcha. And what was this transition like for you? I mean, it must have been kind of hard or at least weird, like after being at the same company for so long, you have to go join this, you know, an already existing startup. Like what was that transition like for you personally? Yeah, I mean, as one thing I said before is it's all, I, I'm never without energy, right? So for me, I was so energized to just go build again. I wanted to go build again. And you think you learn a lot over 10 years, but you're never quite sure until you go try and apply, right? So I was super excited about that. And then I think the biggest thing is most things in life come down to expectations, you know? So I knew what I was getting into and I was ready to go build and the transition was great. And it was just refreshing to go be at a small, nimble company again and dive right in. And quite frankly, the fact that it was in the sales tech space to anyone in sales, especially in a leadership capacity, like it's second nature. So like the value prop and the talk track was super easy for me to pick up. And quite frankly, I was on customer calls in the first few days because it was very natural. Like how big was the company when you joined? What was the state of, of the sales team? Company was about 300 people or so. Sales team, company company was growing really tremendously. This was just before some of the world fell apart again, you know? So it was definitely interesting. Yeah, it was, it was company, company's great. And so you hired nine AEs in six months at People AI. Like, how did you approach your AE hiring? And sort of what do you look for when you're, you're hiring AEs? So if there's one theme from this conversation, Alex, is probably uh, mindset and curiosity. So I'm a big believer that there's a handful of fundamental things that just cannot be taught. You know, natural curiosity, put anyone in the room. If you have the internal inertia and desire to go ask smart questions and understand what's being said in the room and go seek for the second and third and fourth, you always have to get at business pain or getting to know somebody or what have you, right? But curiosity goes a long, long way. And then mindset of wanting to learn, trying to figure out how you go solution and to challenge yourself. All those things that I think are just intangibles that can't be taught. I think it's those two things you combine like an IQ with an EQ mix, you know, can't be taught. You can teach experience. I can teach you sales process or meta or what have you, right? But the other things are, are so critically important. And those are, to me, the, the two absolute requirements and folks that I talk to. Are there specific like interview questions or situations you put people through in an interview process to like test for 
curiosity? Like, how do you actually do that? Yeah. So my, my favorite question these days is uh, for curiosity. Tell me something that you taught yourself in the last six months and tell me how you did it. And people always go, oh, personal, professional. I go, I don't know, pick one. And you get some really interesting ones. You know, one, one person the other day told me they wanted to get better actually at asking questions. So he's like, I started a podcast. <laughs> you know, I was like, and I was like, tell me more about that. How'd you go do it? Right. So you just, it's really, for me, you also got to know people just to understand what they talk about, but you can start to get an understanding of is this person like really a naturally curious individual and how do they go apply that for themselves? And I guess, why is curiosity so important for sales? Is it just because in qualification, you just have to ask deep questions and keep asking, and then you can kind of put that back on the prospect? Like, why is that the single most important thing? So it's a, it's a good question. So I think that you can teach someone to go ask the right handful of questions in the deal, right? You got on a first call, we're going to do discovery, Mr. Mr. Customer, Mr. Prospect. I've got my list of my top 10 discovery questions, fine. The thing is, when the customer gives you that first answer, the ability to not just say, you know what, let me go from number one to number two, let me go dig in on that and go ask the next question, right? And go and ask the next natural question, all in that line to keep getting at, whether it's business pain or what, why that person cares or what have you, right? But the ability to keep asking questions on that initial one that weren't planned, right? But that's something that is very hard to teach. That's what's really intriguing about that as a, as a quality for me. Yeah. And I think it's also really hard to teach like that, like coming across as authentic as you ask those questions, like yes. you're genuinely curious about the problem that they're experiencing and how they're dealing with it today, as opposed to like, hey, I'm just reading my questions off of, you know, totally. my notes tab. And like that authenticity just comes across in people's voices in the way yeah. that they ask and talk. And yeah, no, it's super interesting. I'm interviewing a bunch of sales reps right now. So this is a very top of mind. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, how do you earn how did you earn trust with the people AI team because I'm sure you know there's already a sales team you're the new leader being brought in like how did you earn trust and how would you kind of describe your own leadership style I think there's a handful of things and it's a critical question so whether I did this at Sprinkle or People AI or, or, or where I am currently I think it's a handful, um, five key pillars for me. So I talk about myself, my, my biggest strength is also maybe my biggest weakness and that's empathy. Um, and I think it goes into number two, which is everyone's different, right? And act accordingly. So understanding how the team and what they individually care about, where their strengths and weaknesses are, what their situations like at home or with family or what have you, you know, how to have empathy towards that situation and, and how to treat and work with and help develop personally, professionally, all those folks in a way that makes sense for them, I think is really critical. I think number three is trust and accountability. Often used quote, trust is hard to earn, easy to lose, you know? So I think um, it goes both ways. And my goal is to earn trust and allow allows you then to have a challenging conversation from time to time and hold each other accountable, you know? But I think those conversations only go well when there's mutual trust and respect between the two people having them. Um, fourth is I typically tell tell the folks that I work with that is I'm not going to ask you to do anything I wouldn't do myself. I find that to be disingenuous. Um, and then the fifth is I try my best to be consistent. I try to be a four to six guy. Um, I definitely have energy. I can get excited. I can get upset, what have you. But almost all the time, we've probably all worked for someone before. Maybe you have Alex of like, or work with somebody that you give good news and they're over the moon and you give them bad news. And it's like someone just killed their cat, you know? And it's like, they're just so on either side of it. And it's, it's unsettling, right? It's uncomfortable when that happens. 
So I, I really try to be as consistent as possible in my approach. Good news is good. Bad news is okay, fine. You know, you celebrate things, but trying to be consistent in approach. And I think those have always served me as good pillars in how I work with the team. I'm curious, do you feel like you mold your management or leadership style to the person who you're managing? Or are you fairly consistent? Do you treat everyone kind of equally the same? Or do you, I don't know, mirror back like kind of what they're sharing with you? And yeah, how do you think about like each person's unique quirks as you work with them? So uh, I think there needs to be some level of consistency. There's not enough time in the day to go like be full-fledged, like individual to everybody, but being able to have an individual touch of, hey, I know this person, for instance, like this person is his or her strength is in how they communicate, but they struggle with like deck building. You know what I mean? Or another person, they struggle to ask the tough question of the customer. Another one struggles with this, like, or this one has something's happening at home. Their family member is whatever, right? Like how I work with those individuals and how I, how I, my day to day with them and those interactions, I really try and vary and I don't say acquiesce, but I adjust accordingly, but I do try to keep a level of consistency that sort of there's clear expectations and accountability on both sides. And I guess it goes back to your, I think the first leadership principle you mentioned was empathy and sort of meeting yeah. people where they're at and understanding yeah. what they're going through, right? And then kind of molding your style and how you work with them, you know, totally. accordingly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Switching gears a little bit to like sales process. I you wrote a great article about kind of like the messy middle and the messy middle is where kind of deals are, are won and lost. Can you talk a little bit about what is the messy middle? Yeah. Why is that such a critical state critical stage and like how do you recommend people kind of overcome it? Yeah, so so the messy middle happened. I mean, it was quite frankly the problem that people AI solved. Right? I just I just thought it was a great way to to think about it because I genuinely think it's where deals are won and lost is like, is the middle, you know, people AI was, is great, go to market tech and it sits in an undefined space. That's a very crowded space, right? Lots of players in the, in that go to market space. And so there's like sales loft and outreach that do some outbound prospecting and high volume sequencing. It's like the first 10% of the sales cycle. And then call the last 10% is like the clients and the boost ups of the world. You know, I need to forecast my, manage my deal to closure and forecast my deal. But there's this middle 80%, this messy middles, I think where the deals are won and lost, you know, for the AE that's developing strategic account plans or relationship maps, or I got to do mid pick or banter or fill my, my opportunity scorecard, you know, and then like for the leader, it's how do I get an understanding of what's going on in the account and a factual set of data of what's taking place, you know, and like all those things in the middle, how you coach against that, all those things in the middle, that's pipeline execution. That's the middle 80% of the deal. That's where deals are won and lost. You know, that's all pipeline execution. That's, that's the messy middle, you know? It's interesting. I think this is definitely some of the things we're trying to solve now at Doc because, you know, everyone has their classic opportunity stages and that's how you forecast and get a sense as a leader. Like these are the, you know, the stages of my deal and where we're at, but so much happens in between those stages, whatever you call it, verbal qualification, whatever, there's so much process that goes there. And so much is like, you know, hidden from a sales reps, you know, sales leaders view of what's getting sent to the client. How are we collaborating? Have we done security reviews? Have we done legal? How many product evaluations we have? The list goes on and on and on. And there's such a challenge when it comes to both, like, how do you standardize that process for the sales rep, but then also how do you give like the leadership team visibility into like, what's actually going on here? That's sort of like beyond just like the stages in the CRM. It's yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting yeah. problem. Well, that resonates with to me. your point, like some of those things at the end are like paper process and something like, Hey, I got to move my deal and I got to get it done on time on the forecast. You can actually go back to the beginning and go, Hey, did we actually do the right level of research? And did we map the right place in the org to figure out that we get to power or are we, 
more of just with a coach, right? What, what does that role look like? All of those things really make a big difference at the end, you know, of the cycle. It's what's done in the beginning. That's where I think thing, deals are won and lost. Do you believe in mutual action plans? Like, do you introduce those in the beginning? Does that help this process at all? Or do you find like buyers don't actually want to use them? Well, I think that's the key word, right? Is mutual in the mutual action plan. I think sales reps can put them together all day long, but if they're not mutual in nature, it's just your list of to-dos that the customer's not necessarily buying into, you know? So I think that's key is you need your champion bought in, you know? And I think the other element is, especially, I think if you're selling in IT space, it's one thing, but if you're selling a line of business, you know, so not IT, especially in a large company, most times the sales rep has more experience in how to procure technology around some of the gotchas that happen in a large deal cycle than the person in the other line. Now, many times the person in the line doesn't want to admit that they don't know the answer. They don't want to tell you they don't know. They'll probably just tell you that the answer they think you want to hear, which happens more times than not, not because of anything malicious. They just, they probably mean well, they just don't know. So thinking about how you position and frame that mutual action plan and think through all of the elements and, and help guide that is really critical to getting a deal across the line at the deal closure. Yeah. And I found like the worst mutual action plans, the ones where it's all just like the selfish steps. It's like, let's do legal review. Let's do security review. Let's close the contract. And that's where it ends. It's like, yeah. it's got to be anchored around the customer's problem that you uncovered at the beginning. And like, you know, okay, here's the roadmap of how we're going to solve your problem. Not the roadmap of how we're going to close the deal and get my commission. You know, it's like, you got to kind of change the framing of it. And that's where, when it works best. Totally. Totally. At People AI and now at Cresta, where you work, you've had really a front row seat to how AI is impacting go-to-market teams. And before we get into AI, can you tell me a little bit about Cresta and why you decided to join? Yeah, sure. Cresta is just in a fantastic space. It was an opportunity, quite frankly, I couldn't turn down. So Cresta is contact center AI technology. It's just gets the best results in the industry with the biggest customers, period. Um, it was founded by Sebastian Thrun and two others in the Stanford AI lab a number of years ago. Uh, you know, the name Sebastian Thrun and maybe is the leader of Google X, which was focused on their like Google's moonshot projects, like flying cars, things like that. Right? So the contact center is really interesting. People in the contact center are typically low wage, takes them a long time to ramp and it's a stepping stone job. And like by the time those people are productive and proficient, they're on to the next job, right? So it's a space that's just ripe for disruption. So like Crest has been doing Gen AI for years, well before ChatGPT came into the public view. And so we provide a chat co-pilot called Agent Assist. It helps the contact center agents say the right thing at the right time to drive the objective that they're looking for. Then there's a whole host of data for contact center QA folks and leaders and performance and optimized data. And lots of folks think about the contact center as care, but there's another big use case is sales. So one quick example is like a popular tax software company. They sell their products to consumers. They took Cresta, gave it to 100 agents, and then another like control set didn't have uh, Cresta. In eight weeks, the agents on Cresta drove 2x sales conversions and 4x revenue simply because the technology is helping them along. So um, it's it's really interesting and and really, really fascinating. So interesting. And so so somebody's in, you know, on a phone with a customer, and then the AI is essentially like listening to the conversation and providing recommendations of sort of what to say next. Is that kind of how it works? It's yeah. exactly it. Yeah. yeah. And then you take yeah. that in a couple different uh, ways. Uh, yes. But in a nutshell, that's exactly it. And it's super powerful. 
Yeah, super interesting. Because I imagine I was actually on the phone with Comcast the other day. And it's like, I imagine like those people you talk to, they just have this like hard-coded script of like, say this, then that, customers complaining at this. And then it, it must be amazing to have AI that can kind of like provide recommendations on the fly based off what the customer is actually saying, as opposed to like this hard-coded script that I yeah. assume that everyone has. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And then you think about, oh, you know, it was get rid of the compliance statement, you know, and it's yeah. like, well, how many yeah. people actually do that? But how do they check for that? And how do they... Like there's there's a there's lots of really interesting things that I think it's a space that is ripe for disruption. Hence my choice. Yeah, really cool. And like, what's the secret to kind of selling this AI technology? Because as you're talking, it's like, whoa, I you know this sounds amazing. And do you just like blow someone's mind with a demo? Is there an education problem? Like, how do you think about selling kind of such innovative technology to to companies? I referenced a few books, and I was reading uh, Nate Nesrael's book the other day called Selling With, and he talks a lot about buyer enablement, which I couldn't agree more. And the concept of buyer enablement is how do you go enable your champions to go sell internally? Especially if you work at a large enterprises, your champion is really selling tremendously internally. And especially in a new space in AI that has so much confusion and and a lot of unknowns to it, how you go enable your buyer, I think is so critical. And we're spending a lot of time focusing on how we're doing that today. And what does enabling a buyer actually like look like or mean to you? Is it just giving them, you know, co-creating a presentation, giving them videos? Like, do you organize a bunch of assets in one place for them? Like, how do you actually tactically kind of enable a buyer? Yeah, it's all of those things, but there's a tremendous amount of nuance to it. How you work with your own product marketing, how you go create the right types of content, the right elements. That's really, you use use the right word, Alex, it's co-creation. That's the real key is how you go understand the business problem, how you understand all those key elements, how you go build the right elements to deliver alongside your champion. I'd love to end today's conversation just hearing a little bit from you because you're so deep in this AI world now. Like, What are the trends you're kind of seeing across the marketplace as a respect to AI? And then maybe how it's like kind of impacting your own go-to-market efforts. Are you using this technology to, to close more business yourself? I'd love to kind of hear about it. So on the last one, I'll take the last one first, actually. So um, on a personal level, actually, we've done a bunch of sessions with the team, and I'm sure I'm not, I'm not alone in this, but the thought of using ChatGPT or Google Bard to help with prospecting or research, you know, is really fascinating, really interesting. There's some great things out there to, to help enable sales reps to prospect better and do better research. But when I'm thinking about AI in the large enterprise, like impacting go-to-market efforts is a handful of key observations. One, what we're trying to do or what we can is attach to some level of gen AI initiative in a large company. I'd bet you eight or nine out of 10 companies, if not 10 out of 10, they have some version of some AI initiative, some gen AI initiative. And I think it goes into the second point is there's so much confusion and folks just don't know where to start. Nobody quite knows what is what. Everyone says they're AI, but you need to stand out and be clear. And it, there's this element of, well, do we want to use the public elements like chat GPTs or a private version of that? Do we want to go use the build a private model, which will take years? Like personally, I think the domain-specific LLMs that are focused on a, a single uh, line of business and a single handful of use cases that have tremendous uh, firepower, you know, that's, I think it's really interesting. I think that's where we'll begin actually, and where you're going to see big pickup. Um, The other thing we're really seeing right now is in almost all these deals is we're seeing companies say they have an AI council 
you know, so that's a whole, there was always paper process and infosec. Now the AI council is part of that, that, that process, or we're, we're existing customers. We're seeing brands come to us and say, Hey, I know you already have an MSA, but we need to add this amendment in the MSA for AI, you know, and just adds, it's just elongating deal cycles um, entirely. It's interesting. <laughs> it's yeah. exciting though. And everyone's just figuring it out. I mean, everyone wants, like, knows they need to do something about AI, but the landscape is changing so quickly. And it's like, we're even thinking about how do we build AI technology into Doc? And it's like, OpenAI is a clear, you know, choice. But then Google Gemini gets released, like, last week. And it's like, okay, wow, maybe we build into that. And then the costs involved, you know, AI is expensive computing power. So how does that change business models and how we sell and our pricing and packaging? And it's like, everyone knows we need to do something, but how you do it, and because of changing so fast. Like I'm paranoid. Yeah. I'm going to make the wrong decision, choose the wrong vendor, whatever it is. And then, Oh, this new thing comes up, but it's even cooler and better. And so, yeah, I don't know, but it's a fun puzzle. And it's cool to have like a front seat to like the innovation. Totally. I think it'll be interesting to see. And I was reading one of those uh, VC predictions for 2024, you know, and uh, certainly AI was a big topic, no surprise. And, and some of the stated beliefs was like, is the, the hype around gen AI will, will give way to a focus on results. I think that'll happen sooner than later. And I think the companies that can separate themselves in the AI space, there will be separation and it'll be the ones that can show that they can really be additive technology and can can show that they can go make money and focus on business results with really tangible use cases will be durable. So certainly making that bet right now myself and I'm, I'm excited by it. Well, thank you so much for the wonderful conversation, Jason. If people want to check out Cresta, if they want to follow up with you and ask questions, where's the best place for them to find you? Ping me on LinkedIn. I'd be more than happy to connect and chat. Awesome. Thank you, Jason. That's a wrap on another episode of Grow and Tell. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform, or find every episode at growandtellshow.com. I'm your host, Alex Krakow. Thank you for listening.